Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The Good Shepherd is a beloved image for many Christians. Some of the earliest depictions that we have of Jesus found in shrines and catacombs are as a shepherd. For Jews, the shepherd was a regal figure who followed in the line of Rachel, Moses, and David. Here at St. Luke's, the good shepherd stained glass window in the baptistry has welcomed generations into this sacred space, beckoning, beckoning them into the green pastures of God's gracious love. Personally, this image of Jesus is one that I cherish. At home, I have a prayer desk where I pray morning and evening prayer. And on the shelf, I have an icon of the Good Shepherd. It's no accident that Psalm 23 is one of the most treasured and memorized passages in all of Scripture. It assures us of God's comforting presence with us at all times and in all places. As we continue the sermon series on Revelation, we learn something of the character of our Good Shepherd in the section we heard this morning. Last week, we were introduced to the superhero of Revelation, the Lamb. Jesus the Lamb shows us that God's power comes not through tyranny, violence, or manipulation, but rather through an unwavering and undying commitment to the way of love regardless of the consequences. Well, today we heard the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb is the good shepherd. This, of course, is a paradox. How can the same creature be both a lamb and the shepherd who cares for the flock? And the reason why both are true is that all things are held together by Christ. In him, all divisions cease, all tensions are resolved, all dissonance is harmonized. We heard this in the hymn that we just sang. Jesus is both lamb and shepherd, both prince and slave, both peacemaker and sword bringer. God is both closer to us than we are to ourselves, and at the same time, completely beyond us. The Holy Spirit both comforts and challenges. This is a lesson that we so desperately need to learn, that all things hold together in Christ. His grace is big enough, his love is sure enough, his mercy is deep enough, his peace is wide enough. Consider the opening of today's passage from Revelation. I looked, and there was a multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. All nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. When the plaques arrive for the new icons that we've dedicated, this passage is quoted on the plaque that will go with the Pentecost icon. And this was the vision for that icon, to reflect the beautiful and wonderful diversity of God seen through all of God's children. Someone told me this week that they were showing pictures of these new icons to someone who is in a marginalized minority. 
And upon seeing that Pentecost icon, this person began to weep and said, I've never seen anyone who looks like me in a church before. That's what beloved community is all about. Every Sunday, we say the creed. And in the creed, we say we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And sometimes that word Catholic can trip people up, especially those who would never choose to be or who have been Roman Catholic. Now, to be clear, this is not anti-Roman Catholic sentiment, but the point has to be made that no denomination has the claim or the trademark on Catholic. The word Catholic, it comes from two Greek words, kata, meaning with respect to, and holos, meaning whole. Kataholos, Catholic. It's a word that just means universal or all-encompassing. When we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're not saying anything about Rome or the Pope. Rather, we are professing our faith in the one and undivided body of Christ, made up of all people, languages, tribes, and nations. We are Catholic every bit as the Church of Rome is, because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and they all belong to the Good Shepherd. This, this Catholicity is what Revelation depicts and what the Pentecost icon calls our attention to. And this Catholicity is a hallmark of Anglicanism, something about our tradition that I so value and appreciate. What unites us all is not that we read the news in the same way, not that we all vote in the same way, not that we all dress the same way or prefer the same style of music or think the same way, speak the same way, interpret scripture in the same way, or even have the same theology. And this is what so many denominations, though, are defined by, a set of beliefs, a particular set of rules, a shared interpretation of the Bible. What unites us, though, is our commitment to common prayer. We are joined by the prayers that we hold in common with one another. Yes, she might have a campaign sign for that candidate in her front yard, and you've got the other one. Maybe he gets his news from that network, and you from the other. And yet we still come, and we say that the, the Lord's Prayer together. We all equally need God's mercy. We all come to that altar rail with nothing in our hands and share in the banquet of the Lamb, who is the good shepherd of the flock. And if we are not defined by these stances on social issues or politics, then those issues ought not to divide us from one another. Sadly, of course, though, we are often divided along those lines, because if we forget what unites us, then anything can divide us. This unity without uniformity, though, is not easy. We prefer clear answers, this or that, black or white, yes or no. We really don't like perhaps, gray, or maybe. But Jesus is both shepherd and lamb, meaning that the Christian life is one of paradox and tension. When we share in the Eucharist, are we receiving bread and wine or body and blood? Well, yes. It's not as simple as picking a side and then just ignoring the stuff that we don't like. 
Again, all things hold together in Christ. In him, paradoxes can exist. Two things can be true at the same time. Metaphors can get mixed. Neat and tidy answers are often closer to idolatry than they are to the truth. And at this point, I am not speaking to society out there. I'm speaking to Christians, to the flock of the Good Shepherd. This morning, I am not going to address the news related to the Supreme Court. That will come when we are dealing with news and not leaks, and when I've had more time to listen, pray, and discern about what needs to be said and left unsaid. But to be sure, the church ought to have the first and the last word in the most significant ethics discussion our society has had for at least a generation. But that's a sermon for another Sunday. For today, what Revelation would say to us as followers of Jesus is that we can hold things in tension. No group has a monopoly on being right, just like no group has a monopoly on being wrong. There are no easy answers here, and speaking in absolutes is to forget that it is in Christ alone, not in our logic, not in our reasoning, not in our arguments, that all things are resolved. And again, I'm not speaking to the media or to the pundits or to people who are out there. I'm speaking to those in Christ. Humility and a commitment to Catholicity and common prayer is the only way that we can move forward without giving up even more ground to the forces of evil which seek to divide us and control us. Because our good shepherd does not intend for us to perish in the valley of the shadow of death, but rather to be refreshed by streams of still waters. That is the comforting vision of Psalm 23. And in Revelation, we heard that the lamb who is our shepherd guides us to the springs of the water of life. Jesus is our thirst quencher and we are all parched. We heard that those singing to the Lamb are those who have come out of the great ordeal. Depression, addiction, partisanship, poverty, emotional trauma, those things that happened in our past, health issues, these are the ordeals that we are dealing with, and they have a way of draining us. For the original recipients of the letter of Revelation, the ordeal that they were facing was resistance to the empire. Living in the Roman Empire meant being told how to live and who to worship. And these things were in conflict with what it meant to follow the Good Shepherd. In the section of Revelation that we heard from this morning, John is writing about the opening of the seven seals, which are descriptions of the consequences of human sin. This is the passage where that familiar image of the four horsemen is found. The passage we heard today is an interlude that comes between the opening of seals six and seven. And this passage is a way of reassuring those who are suffering under the ordeals of war, famine, plague, and death, that the suffering they are dealing with will not be eternal and that the lamb will conquer all things in love. God will wipe away every tear 
and refresh us with springs of water. If you've ever been really thirsty, you know the discomfort that comes with it. It's hard to talk with a dry mouth. You feel faint and weak. You feel like you just can't go on. As Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4, he is the living water. And he says that anyone who is thirsty can come to him and be refreshed. Now, I don't know the specifics of the ordeal that you are facing right now. But because we are all humans, I know that each of us has at least one ordeal. Jesus has the water of life to refresh us. And Jesus wants nothing more than for us to drink from him. The image of the still waters of Psalm 23 is one that just resonates with so many people. And the fact that the water is still matters. Animals like to drink at still waters more than they do at babbling brooks. Because for one, the water is quiet. So the noise of approaching predators is not drowned out. Furthermore, flowing water carries the scent of the animal downstream, putting it in danger. But still waters absorb the smell and become a place of safety. In other words, God wants us to stop and drink from the water of life so that evil has a harder time finding us. When we regularly drink from the springs of God's water, it is so much easier to find that God's grace overflows our cups. Now, no, I am not saying that if everyone just came to church every Sunday that nothing bad would ever happen. Of course it would. But if we know where the still waters are and how to find them, then we can get that rest and that refreshment so much more easily when we are thirsty. We can find those springs of water in our prayers. When we pursue justice so that it flows like an ever-flowing stream and in the gift of the Eucharist, and you might notice that when we prepare Eucharist every Sunday, a little bit of water is always added to the wine to remind us of how when Christ was on the cross, his side was pierced and both water and blood flowed out. The Eucharist nourishes us in that mercy and love. And the more that we can come together as a beloved community, the more we will be united in the Catholicity of our faith as we sing praises to the Lamb, who is also our Good Shepherd. Whatever ordeal you are facing this morning, know that the Good Shepherd is with you. His rod and his staff are there to protect, comfort, and guide you. God wants nothing more than to lead you to the still waters in which you can be still and drink and hear that voice of the Good Shepherd calling your name in love. Take that page out of the bulletin home with you this week and pray Psalm 23 at least once a day and let God give you the water of life.